Hello and welcome to the 2020 International Dublin Literary Award Shortlist Podcast, part of the International Literature Festival Dublin. My name is Jessica Trainer, And I'm Caelan Hogan. In this special podcast series, we will explore each novel in detail as we chat exclusively to the authors shortlisted for the award, the winner of which will be announced on the 22nd of October. For the first time, the winner announcement will take place as part of International Literature Festival Dublin, which, like the award, is sponsored by Dublin City Council. Celebrating 25 years this year, the award is the world's most valuable annual prize for a single work of fiction in English or translated into English, worth €100,000 to the winner or winners. On today's episode, we'll be talking about There There by Tommy Orange, published by Vintage. So you got to read this book, Kaylin. Can you sum it up for me? Yeah, I really enjoyed this novel. Uh, There, there. It's about uh, Native American life in in Oakland, um, in a city that has gone through, you know, gentrification and, uh, you know, where the lives of um, a number of people uh, throughout the book show the ways that Native American culture has been stereotyped and gives insight into the lives of people in the city um, dealing with that discrimination and the various sort of challenges that they face. But it really gives an insight into um, modern Native American culture. Uh, And, you know, there's people who are trying to sort of trace their identity to find out more about their identity. Um, There's two sisters who live on Alcatraz um, and, you know, gives us insight into this the native occupation, uh, which I never knew anything about, um, and just this, the, you know, the challenges of urban life um, and the changes uh, that the culture is undergoing. Um, so it's just, it was a real insight into all of that and something that I, I thought was really important to to read about and learn more. Yeah, all of that really struck me, even in the first few pages of the novel, we're given this wonderful collage of history. Um, And I was amazed by how little of this history I knew. And I think it has this wonderfully kind of cumulative grotesqueness to it. You know, this notion of our idea of the the Pilgrim Fathers, you know, the first settlers in America, and then the realities of of some of the things, the massacres, the atrocities that were committed. Um, And the little extract I'm going to read from quite early on in the novel, I think really captures that sense of the uncanny and the strange in the book. Rolling Head. There's an old Cheyenne story about a rolling head. We heard it said there was a family who moved away from their camp, moved near a lake. Husband, wife, daughter, son. In the morning, when the husband finished dancing, he would brush his wife's hair and paint her face red, then go off to hunt. When he came back, her face would be clean. After this happened a few times, he decided to follow her and hide, see what she did while he was gone. He found her in the lake with a water monster, some kind of snake thing wrapped around her in an embrace. The man cut the monster up and killed his wife. He brought the meat home to his son and daughter. They noticed it tasted different. The son, who was still nursing, said, My mother tastes just like this. His older sister told him, it's just red deer meat. While they ate, a head rolled in. They ran and the head followed them. 
The sister remembered where they played, how thick the thorns were there, and she brought the thorns to life behind them with her words, but the head broke through, kept coming. Then she remembered where rocks used to be piled in a difficult way. The rocks appeared when she spoke of them, but didn't stop the head, so she drew a hard line in the ground, which made a deep chasm the head couldn't cross. But after a long, heavy rain, the chasm filled with water. The head crossed the water, and when it reached the other side, it turned around and drank all the water up. The rolling head became confused and drunk. It wanted more, more of anything, more of everything, and it just kept rolling. This is such a, a fascinating kind of metaphor, I think, for what follows in the book, isn't it? About kind of themes of, 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 of want and addiction. Definitely. There's, there's one um, person in the book who, uh, you know, is addicted to both food, um, but also the Internet and about his sort of experience online and the identity that he shapes for himself online and and throughout the book sort of the internet world is is also discussed as part of you know people's experience um and the sort of different existences that people uh you know find escape in different ways of finding escape and addiction is something that is sort of a challenge for many of the people in this book um and i guess is you know, an escape from the just the very long history of violence, uh, both systemic, you know, and every day that uh, Native American people have endured. And um, that I think it shows the, the sort of the, the modern um, expressions of that. Mm, yeah, of that real rolling head, the, the kind of the image of which all of these decapitations that we're kind of overwhelmed with in the first few pages. It has this kind of um, metaphorical aspect, but actually literal as well. Um, and yeah, this is a book that I'm really looking forward to hearing more about. So Caelan, you had the chance to talk to Tommy Orange about the book. So let's have a listen into that interview now. Um, Tommy, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, we're going to be discussing your first novel, There, There. And I guess to start off with, uh, maybe you want to tell us where you are at the moment and how things have been. I know it's a really intense time in the US right now, both with the pandemic and with the election looming. So has, how have the last few weeks been for you? Um, well, it was pretty crazy with the fires. I'm in California, in Murphy's, California. This is about two, out, two hours outside of Oakland. Um, sort of in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains. Um, so it's a town, a small town um, in the mountains. Uh, I grew up in Oakland in the city. So, you know, I've, I've been here for a few years and it's taken some getting used to, to be in a more rural area. But during COVID, um, to be isolated in the mountains is kind of ideal and not have to be around um, crowds and worry. Um, the past few weeks, yeah, we're very much looming is the right word or on the precipice of, you know, hopeful change or the end of the country is what it feels like if Trump gets in. Um, so um, it feels like crazy. Like two weeks ago, we were worried that our house could burn down and the skies were filled with smoke and the, the sun was red if you could even see it. And um, then we watch our debates and we realize just how insane the person running everything is. Um, and that's, I don't know, 24 days or something 
um, away until we find out our fate. Um, so the, the year has been a lot too much for, I mean, we're, we're lucky that it hasn't affected our little family or our bigger family or circles of friends. Um, nobody's been, I've had a few friends that have gotten COVID, but they've been pretty mild symptoms and they've gotten over it. So I know a lot of people are suffering out there and we're very lucky. Glad to hear it. It's it's really overwhelming time. It just feels like this combination of so many different crises, uh, you know, coming together in this moment. So, uh, yeah, a difficult year. I saw sort of an advert recently saying, you know, 2020 isn't over yet. And it's sort of like, give us strength, <laughs> you know, let it sort of let it be over. Um, and so this is it was your first novel um, and it had a huge impact when it came out a few years ago. And it, it sort of immerses us in these interlinked lives of people within the Native American community in Oakland. It explores intergenerational trauma, uh, identity, violence. How, how did the novel start for you? What was the process like in, in writing it? Um, well, I worked in... I grew up in Oakland and I didn't necessarily grow up in the Oakland native community. Um, my dad is Cheyenne and our family on his side was back in Oklahoma. And I was very aware of being an urban Indian um, when, I, when we were back there because they're, you know, they're rural and it's not reservation, but it's like reservation, it's tribal jurisdiction land and their experiences, um, you know, they, the tribe is, located uh, in that area. So there's a lot of Sh Southern Cheyenne people um, that they're around and they know that in the city that we don't have that experience. So being very aware that there's two different um, ways of looking at even within tribes, uh, the authentic native experience and sort of knowing. And then I, then I worked for almost a decade in the native community in Oakland and really came to understand um, how identity informs um, Native people's lives and the, all the complexities therein. And I myself am biracial, my mom is white. So that adds to the complexity and confusion. Um, <clears throat> so I, I'd known I'd wanted to write uh, a novel and I wasn't sure what. Um, I came to writing pretty late and start writing or reading really after until after college. And um, it was shortly after finding out I was gonna be a father that I really started taking a writing project seriously. And the idea for, for this novel came around that time. And the premise was just that all these lives would converge at a powwow in Oakland. And I'd worked on a powwow committee and knew you know, some of the intricacies of the community and just really knew that there was a story to be told about native people in Oakland and about the city of Oakland itself, which has not been represented very much in the literature, um, anything past Jack London and Richard Stein, there hasn't, and that's a long time ago, there hasn't been a lot of representation and there's 10 million books about New York. And I don't think that's fair. I think it's because publishing lives in New York and sort of nepotistic in that way. And Oakland really is at the at the heart of the novel. I mean, it's it's about the city itself and, and one that, you know, has gone through a huge change recently, you know, the effects of gentrification uh, you know come through in the novel uh, which is in itself a form of sort of violence and dispossession um, and you write early on that you know 
getting us to cities was supposed to be the final necessary step in our assimilation, absorption, erasure, the completion of a 500-year-old genocidal campaign. Uh, but the city made us new and we made it ours. So the city is sort of this place of, of, sort of violence and gentrification, but also of possibility. Um, and I think y you discuss or some of the characters actually talk about how these stories haven't been told. It starts with that stereotype of the Indian head test on TV um, and the various stereotypes in media. Uh, was this a story you hadn't sort of seen told, that experience of urban life um, and urban culture? Yeah, there's, there really is not much out there. And um, while I was writing the book, um, I've since found out about certain books like um, David Truer's The Hiawatha. It's very much an urban native novel, but I didn't know about it. Um, and if you have, if you're searching really hard and you don't find anything, that means it's not really out there. Um, there's a 1970s documentary done by um, a guy, I think his name's something like Ken McKenzie or something like that, um, called The Exiles. And it's a black and white film about urban Native people living in LA. Um, but outside of that, it's really not a story that's told. And um, and I, I myself, even growing up in that experience um, and understanding the, uh, the relocation and the assimilation policies and Indian termination policy, um, sort of, I thought I understood that, it, that the government had forced people to cities. Um, but it was, I found out that it was much more complex than that. I helped a group of native youth um, put together a, docu a short documentary um, about people who were re relocated to Oakland. And a lot of the people they interviewed were their grandparents. Um, and I found out that the story was not that, um, that people were forced from their homes to come to the city, but that they wanted to. Um, and I write about in the prologue that some people went to war and then afterward they didn't want to go home. Um, and, and that there was opportunity and it was just a much more complex um, story than just uh, we were forced. Oh, another aspect of being forced away from our land. It wasn't that and, and the strength in the community shows that and I wanted to show the complexity and the, and the life um, of urban native life in Oakland um, through all these characters' voices. And I mean, the city is a refuge for some people, I, like the character Blue, she comes back to Oakland and it, you know, is a sort of escape for her. Um, and I was really interested to read about, you know, um, the occupation of Alcatraz. My mom actually grew up in the Bay Area and it was something I, I hadn't heard of before. And you explore that through the stories of Jackie and Opal. Um, who are kids with their mom, but also have sort of like lived out of a car, um, sort of been traveling from place to place. So there's a sense of displacement within the novel um, as families threatened with eviction. Uh, there's a movement from reservation to city. Um, how important is, is that sense of sort of place and, and dispossession for you um, when you're writing the novel? Um, yeah, I think, I think people that who are from Oakland, um, really have a love of Oakland and a pride about the city and being from the city. Um, and for native people, you know, 
it's not often allowed that you love a city like you love your ancestral lands. But um, home is, you know, what you belong to, what you feel you belong to in that environment that you build a relationship with over time, over lifetimes, over generations. People came here in the 50s and they have great grandchildren that live in Oakland now. And Oakland is home and you know it, um, you know, just like you would any part of nature. But, you know, Native people aren't really allowed to move past a certain point in history because it's convenient to keep us in the past. Um, And it, you know, it's a really, it's cognitive dissonance for uh, American citizens to not think of their country in a patriotic way. And if you look at Native history and what actually happened, it's hard to reconcile that and have kind of, you know, um, keep celebrating our national holidays in a, in a way that's really tone deaf, if you know any Native people, um, and really just uh, willful ignorance. And um, so place was really important to me. I knew I wanted to write about Oakland. Um, and um, and as it related to Native people, you know, there, there is, is a Gertrude Stein from a Gertrude Stein quote, and place is, is so important to Native people, um, home and place. And home and place can especially become important when you've been displaced. People in exile know their homes sometimes and love their homes sometimes more than people who have the privilege of just never being bothered about where they have to be and what they have to consider themselves to be. And that's actually sort of explored in the novel, that idea of, you know, if you don't have to think about history, um, then you have the privilege of not having to sort of live with that constantly. Um, And it is, I think, there's a Baldwin quote um, that you reference, uh, people are trapped in history and history is trapped in them. Uh, and this idea of sort of intergenerational trauma is something explored throughout the novel. Um, you know, we have people like Bill Davis, who's a Vietnam vet and from, you know, a certain generation trying to understand um the son of his girlfriend, Edwin, who's, you know, grown up in this internet culture. Uh, so there's a real sort of conflict between the two or or sort of a distance between the two. Um but there is a sense that there's just history is something you can't escape. Um, and, you know, I think it's something that not everyone understands. And definitely there is this, you know, a, a privilege if you're a white person who doesn't have to engage with that. Um, and the novel really explores the complexity of that, how things are passed on um, from generation to generation. Uh, what did you sort of what was that process like for you exploring those ideas through the characters? I think, um, so I worked in the nonprofit world in, in Oakland in the native community. And so I helped put together a lot of grants and I don't mean to say that I was a grant writer. I, I physically mean I like stapled them together and made copies. Um, I was not high up in the chain of command. Um, but I read a lot of these grants and the language in them. And one of the concepts that I learned about early on in working there was historical trauma. And um, I sort of understood it right away. And this idea of intergenerational tra- trauma. And I think anyone who, who has um, parents or grandparents that they you know they carry a burden of about what happened to them. And it, it's across race and class. Um, 
if you know the sadness of your parents or the, the weight that they carry, um, then you understand the concept of intergenerational trauma right away. Um, and, and it varies in degrees of uh, how much weight people carry based on what happened to them. But you know the concept right away and I understood historical trauma right away. But in working with a novel, um, I very much did not care about grant writing language. I'm not trying to persuade anybody to give me money. Um, I wanted it to be really illustrated through the novelization of characters and for somebody to read a book and understand, oh, I see how um, systemic racism can exist or I see how history can inform the present. And for that, and for somebody to walk in the shoes of characters and uh, live and breathe in scenes in a book, in a novel, uh, I, I think that's a really good way to deliver that kind of message without you know, trying to deliver any kind of message. Um, I think that's what novels do really well and to build empathy. Um, so I went from you know, reading these grant proposals to uh, really trying to understand the craft of uh, what it means to put together a novel and to, to build characters and, and to world build in a way that has that information ingrained in it or embedded in it in a way that, um, that transports the readers into the story but also delivers the message of this is what it can mean to people for people to carry pain for generations down the line and how the continual struggle of people in the present has everything to do with the past. And so often people who are privileged um, have this sort of get over it um, sentiment about history. And um, like, like you said from the book, um, you know, if you have the privilege of, of not having to think about history and how it affects you, and that's how you know you're on the, bird, the boat that serves hors d'oeuvres and fluffs your pillows, as I say in the book. Yeah, and I, I mean, being from Ireland and, and having written about sort of institutional abuse in Ireland, it's something very familiar. And I, I thought something that you sort of explored um, really in a really powerful way in the novel was the sort of... the the things that fuel addiction um, and, you know, what addiction actually is um, and how trauma, you know, is sort of uh, the source of addiction. Um, it's something that, you know, there's so many, uh, we've heard that sort of stereotype of um, addiction in Native Americans uh, when it comes to relationships with alcohol. Um, and I think the book shows through the different relationships um, and, and lives how addiction is really rooted in pain or, you know, in that need to escape um, in, in a way of not being able to deal with that overwhelming trauma, whether it's personal or whether it's generational. Um, and it's not even just, you know, in terms of drugs or alcohol, but alcohol but we also have Edwin who's you know speaks about uh, being addicted to food and the internet you know that's his form of escape um, and I think it's something that people often don't understand uh, if they haven't had that experience or if they don't know anyone who has um, the way that addiction is sort of that expression of trauma. Yeah, you, you must um, I think you know with the Irish stereotype of alcoholism there must be a lot of, um, you know, understanding for we. I had the privilege of going to Ireland uh, during the book tour. I went. Um, my wife and my son came with me on the book tour in the U.S., and then we had a little, a little bit of a leg that we turned into a vacation 
in Europe. Um, and we just decided to go to Ireland because we wanted to and we stayed at an Airbnb where we heard this amazing story um, that uh, this Irish family carried with them about a tribe from the States giving them money um, during the famine. And uh, I'd never really put it together, the colonization piece and the, and the, um, the shared history um, before, do, before that visit. And, and um, it just really struck me. And I, I loved it there. Unfortunately, it was during a drought and all the green that I thought I'd see on the hills was all yellow. Uh, but but we, we plan to come back. Definitely, you should. It's it's very green at the moment and <laughs> quite wet. Uh, I, when was this that there was a drought here? Um, it was like a two-month drought. Okay. Um, it was July, around July, between the first two weeks of July 2018. Okay, yeah, a few years ago. Um, it's pretty rare here, not so rare in California, but uh, uh, rare here. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, there's a lot of parallels and, and you know, another issue that the novel explores is, is adoption. Um, something that, you know, we're reckoning with here, a legacy of adoption, which was used as a form of sort of social engineering. Um, you know, we have Irish travellers who are an indigenous community here. And they had, you know, it was a way of taking children from families um, and putting them with sort of respect, you know, respectable couples. Um, and I think the experience of, of Blue explores that where she grows up in sort of a wealthier family um, in Oakland and sort of leaves to try and find her roots or find her identity and you know both her and Edwin are sort of searching for answers about their identity and trying to reconnect with community um how do you think I, I mean there I feel like there's a lack of awareness of that as well um and how it's affected the Native American community in the U.S. Um, what made you want to sort of explore that within the novel? It's this idea that we were defined by the outside. We don't, we don't really have the agency. We don't, we're not allowed the agency to self-define. Um, and the, the burden of authenticity as defined by the outside is put on us. And so somebody like Blue, who grew up, who's full blood, but grew up in this completely white um, culture, wealthy family who, who's yearning for connection to that side. But, but as far as what might authenticate her, aside from her brown skin and dark hair, dark eyes, whatever, um, they, she doesn't have anything. And that doesn't make her less an indigenous person, a native person, or even a tribal member, which she knows what tribe she belongs to. Um, and so really just wanting to build in the nuance and complexity that comes with native identity without having an answer because it's, because it's so complex. Um, for instance, my son can't enroll in our tribe because while I'm half, um, this is, by knowledge, I know that I'm half because my dad knows our history. On paper, we have um, blood documents that are federal documents, um, certificate degree of Indian blood. On my dad's, he's only half because his, his dad's dad didn't accept him as a son. So he's sort of half nothing. Um, and that makes me a quarter on paper. 
and you have to be at least a quarter to enroll with our tribe. So my son is not technically Native American, according to the federal government, uh, meaning he couldn't get like certain um, scholarships or there's certain times that it, things call for certificate degree of Indian blood. And um, there's a number involved with that. And it's tied to funding over time and it's meant to eventually run out. The blood is meant to run out. It was made to, to end funding to Native people. That was meant to, you know, building um, some form of um, paying back for broken treaties and, you know, all this wrongdoing uh, within that was built in this, like, well, eventually the blood will run out. And so this is just a complexity that, you know, one, one of many stories you could be from, you could be from eight different tribes and be full blooded, but all the tribes have quarter blood, blood quantum requirement and be not federally recognized and be full blood at the same time. Um, just really wanting to introduce in all of the character stories, uh, the different, um, proximities to their culture, to, to their blood, to their people, to Oakland, uh, really wanting to build that in without having answers necessarily, because we're we're just so often reduced to um, to this one, you know, sad Indian silhouette on a horse, mourning about the past and sort of always looking backward. And that way that the state has tried to control people, I, I think you know, in the novel you talk about how if you were sort of you know considered half. Native American, that immediately meant you were segregated um, in some ways. And now speaking about how this idea of, again, controlling who gets access to what and trying to define, you know, what it is to be Native American. Uh, in that interlude section, you explore that. And I think, you know, the the powwow, the bigger Oakland powwow is at the center, you know, of the book. It's what brings all these people together, all these different stories together. Um, and you, you speak about sort of the importance of seeing and, and hearing each other and, and having that place of community. Um, how, you know, talk to us about about that, about that experience um, of, of a powwow and, and how that is important to the community as a, as a celebration, as a coming together. So it's, you know, it's only a portion of the native population who really are into powwows. It's not necessarily all native people. You have a lot of different subgroups that, um, that are into different aspects of native culture, some of which are tribally specific and some are accepting of all, you know, you have like Sundance and Sweat Lodge and Native American church and powwow. And um, uh, so I I didn't grow up around powwows, but um, when I worked in the Native community, like I said, I was on a powwow committee and, um, and I went to a lot of powwows and really came to understand um, what they are and what they mean. And, um, you know, they mean a lot of things. They're, they're a dance contest and they're not, you know, really thought of that in that way, but you win a lot of money. There's some cash prizes of upwards of $25,000 to win a dance contest. That's an aspect of it. People travel the country um, with their families, if they're powwow families, and they, they go around trying to win money. That's a very basic, you know, practical aspect of it. But, you know, there's um, there's old songs and there's old dances and there's tradition and there's beadwork and there's art sold. And um, it's just, it means so many things. What I loved about it and why I wanted it to be sort of the centerpiece 
for um, for the book is that it it feels so contemporary and traditional at the same time, and um, and an urban native person sort of automatically is born into being that. And I mean, at the center of it is is this attempt to rob you know the power through with three D printed guns and a, a drones that are watching overhead and character Daniel watching it through VR so it, it really is this urban sort of very modern experience and all the complexity um, and sort of contradictions within that and a sense of performance but also deep meaning um, in in that experience uh, I think the internet is a really important sort of landscape and place within the novel as well it's you know that these communities that are formed on Facebook it's you know through YouTube watching the powwow you know several characters sort of uh, use the internet to connect and to explore um, and even to find each other uh, how important w was the internet as its own sort of landscape within the novel it was important for me to include a lot of contemporary and technological aspects in the novel, largely because of how often our narrative is historical um, and we're sort of stuck in that place, not only on the page or on the screen, but in the American consciousness, we're, we're stuck back there. So I really wanted to have it feel like right now and anything that feels right, like right now, I mean, not right now, right now, but when I wrote it right now, um, ha would have to include the internet. I mean, it's even more so now with uh, Zoom and isolation and COVID, we're sort of even more um, driven by the screen and into the screen and um, on the internet as a place. It's, it's um, sort of swallowed us during this time. But I really wanted that to be uh, an aspect of, like you said, location or setting in the story, just because that, that is reality. I think um, there's there's some old writing advice. I never got it myself, but I've heard it along the way about not including um, certain aspects of contemporary life because you don't want it to date you. And I think that's like um, some like ego driven idea that your work will live on forever. And you know, for me, I, I love contemporary novels because they can feel like right now, and I don't I don't care if who reads my books in the future. Um, I, I like that novels can have a conversation with now. And so I wanted to conclude the internet because because it is such a big part of our lives and it's and anything that becomes a big part of um, the people of your country's lives or your world's lives is it's interesting to write about and people will connect with it because because it's a part of your life. And I think even the way we communicate, I mean, there's a point where I think it's Calvin is is writing a reply to his dead brother on an email and speaking about how he acts differently online, you know, or it, it is a way that they communicated things that they never would have said to each other. And so there's a whole you know, sort of different form of communication and relationship that happens online, I think, that the novel really sheds light on. Yeah, and I, I was sort of playing with the idea of um, that that the internet is a non-location. There, there sort of is no there there, and yet we're there um, so much. And and I, I've just I've just been haunted by the idea for a long time about what happens to these massive stores of information that are our email accounts when people die. There, do they 
that there's just so much there that just dies too. And um, I was just interested in what it would feel like to to write into that for for toward to a loved one to like this lost account. Um, I just thought that was an interesting way to think about the way people can. It would just brought the the internet space and the relationship to internet alive more alive when it was dealing with grief from a young person to their older brother. Yeah, I think it reminds us the connection that is possible through social media. It's it's become this sort of you know uh, kind of dark place in many ways, but uh, there are moments that it it does create true connection. And, and, you know, sort of brings us closer in ways we wouldn't be. Um, I think the story about um, Dean, uh, who is, you know, recording these interviews, he's at the power, but he is, you know, applying for a grant as well uh, early on in the novel to create this sort of document, to document the stories of um, people and, and how they sort of relate to their own experience um, as Native Americans. Uh, and I felt like it it sort of interrogated the ways that we document, the way that the media, you know, interviews people and represents stories. And I thought it was a really interesting exploration of um, a more open or uh, sort of an interesting way to really give space to people to talk about what they want to talk about and to think about their own experience in a different way. Um, do you think we need to sort of create more spaces like that or at least to change the focus of why we do those interviews? You know, is it for a, a sort of outside audience or is it actually something for a community that can create a resource? Um yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a lot happening in the publishing world and in the mo- movie and TV worlds around representation. I think there's still a lot of work to do, but when when people from within their own communities can represent their own people, it's less likely that these gross mistakes will be made where it feels very anthropological or like, you know, look at these exotic people. And so your questions are flawed at the outset if you come at it from the outside and sound like an outsider, it's gonna it's gonna feel gross to everyone who knows the inside of it. Um, so I think the more power that's put in the people, in the hands of the people who are from communities, um, the more naturally it will come across as, um, you know, it'll explore things that are more authentic and more um, nuanced uh, about experience and and more specific and human, I think. I think when you, there's something inhuman, when you come at it from the perspective of outside, like look at these interesting people, um, like some of the copy on my book when it was going out, um, some of the language was like uh, the side of America few of us have ever seen. And even within that, when you say few of us, you're sort of pointing yourself out as the dominant and then we're all looking in at this weird little subculture in American society and that, you know, that is the publishing world calling itself out on accident as like, you know, uh, but I, I think things are changing in a, in a serious way. And like I said, there's a lot of room to grow and the more that we do grow um, and give power to um, people from within marginalized communities, the more we'll see that they're so much like us. I mean, who is us when I say that? It's I, I'm always con- constantly battling with the, the dominant narrative being inside me and the, the marginalized narrative being inside me at the same time. 
And I think, I mean, the novel show, it is sort of polyphonic. It shows that there isn't a monolithic sort of identity when it comes to being Native American. Um, you know, that there's all this complexity and that no one sort of, no one person speaks for that community. One thing that I, I wanted to ask you about is is um, sort of how that generational uh difference sort of was something that you wanted to explore in the novel between um you know the likes of Bill and Edwin and that sort of from your experience and speaking to people um how how that gap sort of is being explored and and w how you see that changing now with a sort of new generation growing up and uh, and also that experience of of being biracial is explored a lot in the novel and that difficulty between sort of being, you know, on the one hand, um, having that legacy of, of dispossession and, and sort of and violence, but also, uh, you know, being the sort of the aggressor or, you know, having that side of you as well and trying to s sort of bring the two together or, or um, kind of, yeah, uh, make sense of both those legacies within you know, your one identity? Well, I think in terms of generational decisions of representing, representing um, generational divide or different generations or even genders, um, I, didn't, I didn't go into it thinking that I wanted to do that. It was much more organic in terms of the, uh, how the voices came and what age they were. Uh, at a certain point at the beginning of writing it, it felt very much like auditioning voices like I'd, you know, I'd go at the page really early in the morning and um, a different voice might come out and they could be old or young. And then, you know, certain voices ended up sticking and having more legs um, than others and they're who ended up staying. Um, but in terms of uh, rectifying this divide, I think, I think even people who aren't biracial, uh, even somebody full blood can identify with um, feeling like you're from both sides because the dominant culture, if you grow up with TV, you automatically have that implanted in your head. Like the we, um, if all of the heroes you see are white people, you, you understand who the we is of dominant culture and you automatically have that inside of you and you have to contend with it um, and the difference between the we on the inside of a marginalized group and the we that is the dominant culture. I think there's a lot to explore in biracial experience and in mixed race experience, because I think as humans um, living in a global world now um, and with the internet bringing us all so close together experientially, um, I think there's, there's just a lot to explore in that, in rectifying uh, how we can um, bring all those things together to, to mean one thing to, and to bring us all closer to being, feeling like we're one humanity. I think that, that is something that um, novels can do really well is, is, is making you understand as a reader that no matter how different uh, the experience or world that you read about uh, underneath it all, there's a shared humanity that you can find uh, in, across world literature. And you're working now on a sequel to There There, I was reading. Uh, would this be following the same cast char characters or um, yeah. how is that going? It, uh, I, I was really excited and then sort of crushed. I got a sort of a tough editorial note, uh, but it's a good one. I love my editor, and um, but it's always, 
hard to get notes um, and to be excited. Um, but I'm always excited about the newest thing I'm doing that I only re later realize is not the best. Um, so I'm sort of on the mend now and um, going back at it and making a lot of big changes. Um, and, you know, there's a historical component to this and structurally it's different and I'm not doing as much POV exploration, um, but it is the same characters, some of them, uh, and they're new characters and it's, it's about, um, coming back from what happened at the powwow and it's sort of a, a microcosm of the way people come back from what happened in history. Um, and, but it's, you know, Opal and Orville and his brothers are very much core in the story. I, I mean, it really left me wanting to read more. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um, and with this award, uh, libraries vote for the books. And I wanted to ask you um, if there have been libraries that were important to you as, as a writer um, or as a reader. Um, well, because I was not a reader growing up or a writer, um, um, not necessarily. I There's definitely um, my local library um, that... I went to in summers to read, but uh, we would go to the library to read books because they offered um, Oakland A's tickets, baseball tickets, to if you read enough books. And so we were reading to go watch the baseball game and get free tickets. Um, so the Diamond Library in the Diamond District in Oakland, um, I have a lot of love for it, um, but I can't say that I was there as a young man. Um, getting excited about literature, because that's just not true. Um, I didn't find it. I wish I found it earlier. I wish I fell in love with it earlier, uh, but that's just not the way it happened, so. Brought excitement in some way anyway, at least. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Um, I, I was reading about you had a free event at, at some library and, and a woman got up and sort of interrupted it midway through. It was with another author um, at a free event at a library that you were speaking at. Um, is that something, because I know you've written about Thanksgiving and, and you know, uh, sort of challenging people's understanding of things. Um, how has the reception been to the book? Have you had sort of instances like that where people just find it uncomfortable or they, they sort of have railed against um, some of the insights that you provided? I would say for the most part, um, it's been an amazing reception, um, you know, critically and people that I meet on tour, um, I, I can't complain overall. There definitely are instances, and this was through the San Francisco and Oakland, a partnership between the San Francisco Public Library and the Oakland Public Library. And there was this free event and it was packed and um, sort of like fire code breaking packed. Um, audience of free event and was being um, interviewed by a poet who was the poet laureate of San Francisco. And this woman about 15 minutes into the talk, uh, it wasn't to her liking and she stood up and um, uh, just made a complaint and it really bothered me. And um, I sort of called her out on it. And anyway, it's, there are certainly 
instances of ignorance showing um, and privilege showing in comments from the audience. And I um, am pretty outspoken to those people. I, I don't really, um, I, I'm a shy person by nature, but in those situations, if something, it brings up something in me that allows me to address it in real time, which I'm grateful for. Um, and a lot of people, you know, call the book sad and in a really reductive way. And um, I'll be the first to admit that there's a lot of sadness in the book and I'm a sad person. Um, but to reduce it as like, it's just so sad. Thank you so much, condescending and hurtful. And there's not one native person that I met while touring the country um, who called the book sad. There was a lot of excitement and exuberance coming from those people who read it because they saw themselves in it. And that's, uh, it was refreshing to them. And, and they, they know people like the people in the book. So um, that was something that um, was powerful to them. And that's more of the feedback I got from native people. Um, so it's, it's a small number of, of white people who showed their privilege and were annoying and um, there were awkward and uncomfortable moments. But uh, for the most part, it was, you know, it's really wonderful, the reception. I, it's my first book and uh, it was a Pulitzer Prize finalist and um, won some other awards. And I, I'm nothing but grateful for, for the reception. I, you're not going to find me complaining about it. No, it's not as the last word I would use, you know, and I think that I think people are just, they find it difficult to be confronted with things that make them feel uncomfortable. Um, and But I think it's incredibly important. And the novel does that in a very powerful way. Um, so thank you thank so you. much, Tommy, for taking the time. Uh, it was a real pleasure to, to talk to you and wish you the best luck with, with writing. We'll yeah, look forward to, to reading the new book. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in to the other episodes as we count down to the 2020 International Dublin Literary Award winner announcement. Wherever you're listening from, we invite you to join us for the online awards ceremony broadcast from the Guinness Storehouse in Dublin on the 22nd of October at 11am Irish Standard Time. You can book your free ticket at www.ilfdublin.com and browse the other fantastic events in this year's International Literature Festival Dublin programme.